Hey there, and welcome to the UX Growth Podcast, sponsored by Bubble, the platform that empowers you to build web applications with no coding required. This is your go-to spot to dive deep into all things UX design. Here, we tackle the questions you've got about navigating the UX field and share a thing or two to help you grow in your UX journey. Each episode is all about making the tough stuff feel doable and inspiring, you to take the next step in your career. Now, let's jump right into today's chat. Hi, this is the UX Growth Podcast, the podcast that helps people learn and grow in the UX design industry. I'm your host, Nick Mann. I'm here with another guest of season three, Ryan Young, a design leader and certified OOUX strategist who enjoys working with cross-functional teams to turn whiteboard sketches into real-world products. Thank you so much, Ryan, for being here. Hi, how's it going? Yes, I'm doing well, and I hope you also are doing great. I'm excited to learn more about your experiences in UX design. So let's start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how did you get to the place you are today? Yeah, uh, so I am the director of product design at a place called P3 Plus Uplift in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I've been there for almost a year, but my career getting up to this point has been pretty varied, I would say. I started off wanting to be a journalist. I went to the University of Iowa and did four years at the school paper there, a journalism degree, came out of that thinking I wanted to be a sports writer, ended up getting a job that was sports related, kind of writing related, found design, graphic design through that role after about a year there, thought I really liked this whole design thing. So I went, moved back to Des Moines and got a job as a graphic designer, worked for this very small company doing signs and t-shirts for like two and a half years. During that time, people wanted me to design websites for them. And I was like, ah, oh, I know, I don't, I don't know how to code. I'm not really that smart to, you know, figure that out. So mm-hmm. I kind of got tired of saying that and I taught myself HTML and CSS and was able to finally find a way to work on a project with some friends kind of on the side and that spurred it, getting a job at my very first web design agency. And from there, it kind of just took off. Mm, yeah, that's always so exciting to see, hear about how other designers do it. Yeah, I know I get that kind of question a lot from my listeners about how we go through like the process of like finding where is it our calling and what we do. And it's just so fascinating because there's never one right way. Yeah. Yeah. So, one thing that I am always interested in is just looking back at my career and just how much of the journalism skills that I use every day kind of translates very easily into, into UX. So if there's any journalism school graduates or people in journalism school right now, there's, there's a path to UX for sure. Oh, wow. That's so fascinating. But I guess there is a level of research you have to do to cover mm-hmm. a story and even a story of itself, being able to share what is the user going through their journey and such. Ah, I, I can see that. Yeah, I know. And I think one of the things that correlates to a lot of the UX and abilities through all the processes, I'm also kind of curious, how did you get into the accessibility of UX design? Yeah, great question. So the, that very first job uh, when I got into web design, that was very much a... I came on as a quote project lead. They hired me knowing that I had my design background and also was very skilled in in CSS. I think that very first year, maybe the second year that I was at that job, I went to a conference in 
New Orleans. It was called CSS DevConf. I don't know if it's still around or not, but they had a lot of different speakers. And I attended one presentation by a guy named Derek Featherstone, who's an accessibility advocate. And his presentation just really opened my eyes. And from that, from sitting in that conference room, from that point forward, I said, I never want to have to have someone struggle with anything that I I design, create, build, whatever it is. So from there, it was really just like, I went to that conference. I learned a few different things that I can start implementing right away. I did those things, kind of fell down a rabbit hole. I was at that job for about five years. And so from there, just continuing to learn about, you know, the WCAG requirements, learning about how to implement those things, things to watch out for. On the same token, like in that same sort of role, people were asking about SEO. We didn't really specialize in SEO or marketing or anything like that, but mm -hmm. I found a really tight correlation between accessibility and SEO. So if you're doing one thing right, you're probably doing the other thing right as well. There's a few other nuances in terms of accessibility, but from there, it was just like a continuous learning learning curve. And I've actually found that that's really helped me. That's something that I'm passionate about and something that I, I carry with me in all of my my work that I do. But I've also found that there are other people out there in different roles and jobs that I've had who also care about accessibility, but it's one of those things where there's still a lot of learning that has to happen from companies large and small. Not every developer knows about accessibility or what's required for that. Not every designer knows about that. Project managers, there's, there's lots of knowledge gaps. And I'd mm -hmm. say that's one huge area where if somebody can, I don't want to say specialize, but if they can really be interested in that and just understand some basics and kind of level up every year. I mean, I didn't like read a bunch of books or watch a bunch of videos. It was just practice, you know, going through, okay, here's a website. How can I make sure that all the things that I want to have someone interact on are accessible via a keyboard or other, other areas like that? There's just so much with accessibility that it's hard to be a expert at it, especially coming from a singular discipline. But if you can mm -hmm. find a small group of people or even just another person who's interested they can kind of tackle some of their areas, like a developer who can specialize in the development side or a project manager who can maybe take on some of the other auditing or review areas for accessibility. Yeah, that's kind of a long-winded question or a long-winded answer, but I just kind of fell into it and just kind of, it's always just been something that I've been passionate about ever since. <laughs> yeah, no worries about ever being like long-winded <laughs> because I believe what needs to be said is always very proper to hear about. And it covers a lot because accessibility is pretty huge mm -hmm. on top of all the different layers and skills of UX design and how these are all just pieces of the puzzle and how they're also all interconnected because it's all based on the user about their problems and mm -hmm. how our problems aren't always just one dimensional like oh this here's one solution it's usually connected to other problems as well absolutely yeah no also oh, one issue that i've i've noticed with ex accessibility that happens with businesses is sometimes it can take over the aesthetics of mm -hmm. what they're trying to achieve with the product mm -hmm. and i'm i love to hear how would you balance the two in a way that like, it can be aesthetically pleasing without getting the way of the functionality of the app in a way people can actually enjoy it with all their disabilities they may have? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think one of the main things coming from just a pure visual standpoint from accessibility is color contrast is huge. I think I've seen that pop up and be more prevalent probably in the last like two years or so. Just the number of people like being more vocal about that and caring about that. And I think that's kind of one of those easy wins, but it's also an easy can of worms, especially when you have a, a company or a brand that kind of has some set 
color guidelines. And I think what's really huge is working with whoever's in charge of those brand guidelines and say, you can have those things, those brand guidelines for colors for print or digital signage or whatever that is, but let's maybe refocus and see how we can alter those colors. So they provide that color contrast on the app side or the the website side, because there's going to be things that are going to be baked into that design system or that style guide could bite you later on. I mean, when we talk about accessibility and these WCAG guideline requirements and the standards and whatnot, they are baked into ADA law. They're not things that you can be dismissive of. So getting back to your original question about how can people still be accessible and aesthetically pleasing, I think it comes down to having designers who focus on that from the beginning and designers who aren't necessarily, you don't have to know how to code, but I think if you just are paying attention to things like color contrast, how much things stand out, overall hierarchy. I mean, one thing too is like fonts, making sure that you're not using like a size 14 font, but like you're using a super lightweight because it just is very hard to, to, to read and see. And so I think just ensuring that everything is legible, whether it's a label, the actual text of a word, the size of an image, things like that. Those are just things overall that are great design in general. So I don't think people can say that you know, being accessible makes things ugly. I think you can make things look beautiful if you know how to design them in a in the right way, the way that they should be according to you know WCAG standards. Mm-hmm. Yes, I like the example of colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because and color color blindness was like one of the first lessons I've learned and my ability mm-hmm. to understand accessibility because that's mm-hmm. something that I never had to deal with at all. Mm-hmm. So when I had a user that actually had that problem in the testing, it was and I actually did not know this before the testing at all. So it was very interesting yeah. to see like where the results were coming from and how was this happening. And now he actually got to the bottom, like what was happening? And then that like opened my mind of how instead of immediately using color, we should just use like different shades, like monotone, and Mm -hmm. then build the color scheme on top of that. I I find that to be the most effective way. I'm curious to know if if that's how you would address that. But that's just something like my personal experience comes, comes to my mind when it comes to color. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic as well, because you mentioned like having different shades and hues of a different of a, of a color. And I think that's one thing having worked previously in a role where I was helping, I was on the team for the design system. And there was a very clear need where we needed to have additional colors, additional shades and hues because of that sort of same fact where we couldn't just make everything be one color or we couldn't use like a, a red and a green and a blue because that's just not how a lot of websites and apps are built. Like it's nice to see those little color palette strips where you have these like vibrant colors, but you can't build an interface out of those things. So if you either have the the leeway in your current role, or if you have the ability to work with your brand and marketing department and find ways to extrapolate on those core colors so you can provide yourself lighter tints and shades and darker tints and shades so you can have that variability so that way when you go to build those designs uh, and those components you have a lot more flexibility and you can say okay well i i need this label this little chiclet or you know 
tile or whatever it is to stand out, or maybe I need it to stand out, but not as much as this other big call to action over here where you can you can dial down some of your color usage or maybe switch to a, a darker or lighter tint based off of what your overall interface is. And that kind of helps not only that that visual hierarchy, but also kind of helps give you that that breathing room so you're not feeling like you have to use, you know, your primary brand color for everything. And then it gets oversaturated and kind of overstimulating for the user. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With all those misconceptions of accessibility, I'm curious to know what are some of, of the biggest ways that you have seen and any that you would like to debunk? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah. I think the number one thing, which a lot of people say is that uh, accessibility is not just for blind people. I think mm-hmm. that's a very easy trap to fall into, especially when people who aren't familiar with accessibility are either designing or they are their coding things like that. Like, oh, well, you know, we'll work on that for for blind people or, or whatever. But the reality is you just, just look at, you can just do a Google search or YouTube search on how people with X disability, it could be a colorblindness, it could be um, a physical disability, it could be someone with a certain mental disorder or things like that, just how they use uh, the web. And there's nowadays with content being so prevalent, there's ways you can you can actually see just how someone uses something. And so I think that's very eye-opening, kind of like you said with your example where somebody who was colorblind kind of brought it up after the fact. And once you have one of those experiences or you can connect that human side of it, I think that really just kind of opens people's eyes. But colorblindness in, in general is kind of the one huge misconception. But I mean, there's so many different types of disability that this kind of adds additional volume to the importance of why accessibility is so important. Like I said, I think everyone kind of falls into that trap of like designing for blind people or blind people being the primary types of disability and things like that. I think one of the great infographics out there is by Microsoft and they have the inclusive design and they have the idea of a permanent disability, a temporary disability. And then there's a another one that I can't think off the top of my head, but I mean, you can think of like the example of not being able to use a limb. Well, you could literally not have a limb. You could maybe, which would be a permanent disability. You could have a a broken arm, which is temporary. You know, so I'm only able to have one hand or, or one arm available for a few months or whatever it is. But you could even have like a an even more extreme temporary disability where I have to hold my baby right now and I need to also like pay this bill online using one hand. So I'm not disabled by any means, but I literally can only use one hand right now. So. I think being able to see that infographic and then understand how the ability to do something that doesn't require a fully able-bodied person or that however however a fully able-bodied person, person would use something is not always the case, especially when it comes to these things that seem so banal, like holding a baby while you're trying to put your credit card information in. It can be challenging or even trying to do it like on your phone or things like that. So I think... Just the whole overall misconception of there's only one type of disability we're going to design for or we're going to develop for, that's probably the the biggest one. But there's very easy ways to just kind of open up your eyes, you know, just like I said, looking at YouTube videos or doing a little bit of research or, you know, inviting people to do usability testing and having experiences like what you shared. I think the more people can see those and they can connect those human sides of what disability looks like or you know, whether it be a very obvious disability or a hidden or a mass disability, those are very eye-opening moments that I think kind of get people on board with why it's so important to design and develop for accessibility in mind. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful note for accessibility and why it's such an important issue. Like, I love that 
it is going more forward and becoming more the normal mm -hmm. and these tech companies to be able to understand the importance of it. I, I think it's absolutely amazing and props to like every designer who has been pushing for it because I know designers who have been trying to be vocal on that for years and it mm -hmm. feels like they're finally being noticed. Yeah, I would say sometimes, I mean, the sad reality is too that, especially for some big corporations, sometimes it takes a lawsuit to open people's eyes and understand why it's important. I mean, you can look up like the Department of Justice and Accessibility, and I'm sure you'll probably see every year there's different companies that get tagged with some sort of lawsuit from accessibility. Oh, man, that's unfortunate. That's what it takes, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so shifting gears a bit. Mm -hmm. So collaboration is a key in UX design. So can you share us some of your experiences that you've had on a project where you have worked with a successful teamwork across disciplines that made a significant difference? Yeah, I love that we are transitioning uh, from accessibility to um, this collaborative cross-disciplinary um, focus because I would say ever since I got into digital design and it's it's always been collaborative with a team. So even when I was working at that very first web agency, you know, I was always working with my developers. I'd have an idea for design or I'd have an idea for an interaction. And I would say, can we do this? What do you think about this? How much longer would this add? And just getting their feedback. And I feel like even though I, I had a good grasp of HTML and CSS and during that same, that five-year span, that first company, I learned some, a decent amount of JavaScript. And I was able to kind of speak their language in a, a development standpoint, but I think just being able to approach them and ask for their feedback in terms of, is this going to take too long? Do we have the ability to do this? Do we have the data? Sometimes I felt like it was like, is this even possible? That really kind of added to my credibility and helped make things successful in the long long run because we knew that we were going to stay under budget or we, go, we knew... That if something, if a feature was going to take too long, we could then go back to our client and say, hey, we really think this is a cool way to do this, or this is the best way to do this, but it's going to add X amount of time to, to the scope or to the timeline or whatever that is. So that was always successful in those kind of small micro moments. I would say kind of to answer your question, the biggest way that we were successful as a cross-functional team, back when I worked at a regional grocer doing the design system work, the design system team, that was purely a cross-functional team where we had... UX engineers and a product manager who were all focused on accessibility. Everyone had their nose to the grindstone focusing on obviously the design system, but everyone was so accessible, had accessibility in mind from the beginning that just baked it in. And I think not having engineers who were, I think if we didn't have engineers who were on board with that and weren't willing to collaborate with us from a UX standpoint, we wouldn't have been successful because of the fact that those developers then were able to have separate conversations with their development teams or their development peers and say, hey, look, this is why we were doing things the way we were doing. UX wants to do it this way and we support them because of these reasons. And so kind of in the same sort of vein where you can build that credibility with other other peers, other other team members, they can feel like they're part of the decision-making process with you. And then if somebody challenges a a way that you're working or a, a way that you've done something, they can step in and kind of speak the language of that department or that discipline and say, no, we're doing it because of these reasons and it's going to help you because of X, Y, Z. That's always been a huge, powerful kind of sticking point in my mind for why it's always important to never be dismissive of your, your peers outside of UX. I mean, in the same sort of vein, also just being collaborative with your, your peers and 
in the same discipline. Sometimes with these really big companies, you can have large UX teams and they might be focused on a certain area of the product or a certain feature and they can kind of feel sort of siloed even in that regard. So never discount being able to bring somebody from a completely different area of the business over to collaborate because they can one, point out things that you might be missing or two, might be able to share information with other people that they learn from you. So so it's always been successful from all those different roles. I don't think I've ever really had a job so far where not being collaborative with people outside of UX has been the norm. It's always been, here's here's a, a cross-functional team. You're going to build a product or you're going to work on this project and you're going to all work together as, as a team, just like a baseball team or a basketball team. Yeah. Yeah. If there was one thing I noticed transitioning from graphic design to UX design mm-hmm. was how much more team involvement it was 100 percent. i know that was definitely that took a little bit of a learning curve because there is not only just talking just like in the chain of command to the client now it's feels a lot more diverse than other kind of parts of a business that i, I would never have thought i'd be talking to or even be knowledge about like they even existed <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny you mentioned the whole transitioning from graphic design as well when you're talking about that made me think of my time when I worked for that really small sign and t-shirt shop. I guess in a way I was also like kind of cross-functionally collaborative because I would talk to our our screen printers and I wanted to print graphics as large as we possibly could because when I got there, I noticed that the graphics just like weren't very, they weren't very big and not talking about like the size, like a small little t-shirt, you know, left chest logo or anything like that. I'm talking about like, I want like a big graphic that you see like on department store shirts and whatnot. And I was like, how can we do this? What do you need from me to be able to print that large? Is it, do we not print that large because we've never done it before? Or are there certain challenges with the size of the screens that we print on? And so I learned a lot. And I think, again, being willing to learn about what challenges they face based off of my decisions or things that I want to do kind of helped that collaboration as well, because then we kind of got to make decisions together and be on the same page. They learned from me, I learned from them. I think back on it, it's always been collaboration and just understanding what the parameters are and how we can maybe step outside those those boundaries or maybe bring mm-hmm. people along has always been beneficial for me. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I've also learned and see a lot of how you're communicating, this is all about how we are able to communicate mm-hmm. of you know, our engineers, our managers, other designers, and all sorts of things like that. So I just want to know your your expertise and how do you ensure effective communication? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think I learned a lot on that design systems team when I worked on that project because I learned that in a very big effort like that, there was not there was no there was no such thing as too much communication. We were trying to find ways that we could communicate in our our Slack channels, in-person meetings, individual team meetings. Um, larger company meetings, pretty much every opportunity. At first we were like, oh, we said it one time or we said it two or three times. Everyone must understand it now, right? And we were mm-hmm. kind of learning that people were, you know, either just out of the office and they didn't get to see that session or didn't get to catch up on the Slack channel, you know, for a day or whatever. Because I mean, there's so many messages that, that pop through in anyone's communication via email, Slack, daily calls, whatever it is. So we realized after a certain amount of time, like there's just not... There's not such thing as over communicating. We're gonna, and from there we took the standpoint of we're going to take time every week to make sure that we're hitting these different channels, that individuals are talking to their departments, 
with whatever's coming up or whatever challenges we're having so we can make sure we're hitting all uh, all areas and make sure everyone understands. I think that's probably the biggest thing, not to expect that, well, I said it once or I did one presentation so everyone's going to understand it and remember it because that's not the case. People have their own own things going on or they might be really interested in, in the moment, but then you know, after a, a presentation or after looking at your Slack message, they might have some fire that pops up and then they just forget everything that they just learned from you. And that's just natural. I mean, one thing you have to remember too, is that everyone's the hero in their own story. So you might think it's important because you're saying it, but they believe that whatever they're doing is the most important thing. So I think just being able to tackle multiple different channels of communication and also find ways to make yourself available to answer questions that people might have. Those are always the best thing. I think the the best thing that we did during that time was opened up a weekly office hours where anybody who had questions about the design system, we were like, hey, here's an hour every uh, day of the week that we're going to be available. You're not going to bother us. This is dedicated time for you. Drop in, ask a question for five minutes, hang out for a little bit. And if you have something else to do, like that's totally fine. And we got a lot of traction that way because we opened up the, we basically removed all barriers for communication we said hey this is your time like we're going to be here for you we're going to still communicate the ways that that you know us to communicate through email slack in-person meetings things like that but we're also going to set aside this one hour every week to make sure that if you have a burning question about how to implement the design system in your project we're going to be here for you so you can do that wow i I like that open office policy there i think that's really cool it reminds me of what my college professors did and they can attest to that works. So yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah. I know. It's so fascinating to hear how other companies are able to communicate and go through their schedules and the difference between the methodologies of what works and what doesn't. It's always so fascinating. And it's like really cool to see how people are being more optional about it too. I think that's really cool too. Yeah. And I would say we're doing that. We're actually doing the same sort of concept right now, the office hours concept at where I work, because we're finding that our account managers and salespeople, they're just new to the sort of work that we do, which we can maybe hit on later on, but they're, they're coming along pretty well, but we still find there's, there's questions or people are maybe intimidated to talk to us directors because we're also working on, on projects every day, every week. So I think they're like, oh, I don't want to bother them. So we're like, hey, we're going to set aside that one hour every week. This is your time just to open up that communication. We're still going to, you know, have our Wednesday meetings. We're still going to do emails. We're still going to do our chats, things like that. But we're going to set aside that time. We had our very first one this this last Friday and it it went pretty well. And we're going to keep doing them for the, the rest of the quarter. So, you know, maybe we'll report back on how it's going. But I think I think it's going to be very similar to that design system work for sure. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Probably one of the biggest questions I get from my listeners is on the topic of communication mm-hmm. is how can they deal with the challenge of advocating for UX and their team when they don't feel like they're being valued? Mm, that is a great question. I would say that one of the best ways that I've been able to do it is when you can find opportunities to do usability testing, to bring those people along to sit either alongside you, either to like be a note taker, or if you have the ability to do it remotely and just open it up so they can kind of quietly listen in. That's always been the most eye-opening for people who are not familiar with UX. I think one of the best compliments I got was from a developer who was not necessarily skeptical of, of UX, but they just never really quite understood what we do. And then to have her sit in on one of our usability testing sessions and 
it was on a product that she used to work on before she came to the design system team. And she was like, oh yeah, you know, I, I remember working on that feature, you know, however many months or years ago. And I was, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is fine. But then having seen somebody now struggle with it and call it out for like being not very good, like that's like a, a point of pride. Like I want to go back and fix it now because I'm realizing that I didn't, it totally missed the mark. I think I hear similar stories to that, even like now as a consultant, having stakeholders sit in on those meetings as well, just listening, they, they understand that it's not somebody just griping or, or whatnot, like they can actually see people struggle. And that is always like the most effective thing. I think if people aren't able to come along and sit on those, just creating a, I guess we can call like a sizzle reel, either moments that are like really, really great were successful and maybe like, I guess a blooper reel in that regards where things that weren't very great or things that were where people struggled the most. And you can kind of string those together and see where people struggled because those videos get shared around, they get passed around, they open people's eyes. That always seems to kind of be a big boost for, for UX. But if you're in a position where you're struggling right now, where you have a UX department or you are maybe a UX team of one, I think finding ways to involve people early on and that isn't necessarily it's not necessarily having them review your your mock-ups or your wireframes or anything like that i think one eye-opening thing with that oux or object-oriented ux certification process that i did was there's so much research and knowledge gathering that has to happen before you can really design anything that the oux framework really provided a method for involving others because you have to ask certain questions that you as a designer will not have the answers to. You have to go and seek the information out from, from the engineering team or the product team or from, from users and being able to bring those early questions on before you've really decided, decided anything. Cause I think people see designs, be it wireframes, high fidelity mockups, prototypes, whatever that is, they see that as a decision has been made. And then they get kind of defensive and they're like, oh, well, we got to change this or that's not how it's going to work or, or whatnot. So the, the earlier you can bring people in on the information gathering side and then kind of maybe keeping them up to speed and occasionally having them review early concepts, they can feel part of that decision-making process. It might vary in terms of how collab collaborative people might want to be. But I think anytime that you can avoid just taking a even if it's a rough design or a rough visual to somebody and getting feedback, if you can take that two or three steps further back and get, get questions answered or check your assumptions before you design anything, I think that will build up some credibility for UX. And then as your project moves along, that will help add more that collaboration piece of, okay, I know what Ryan's doing in this situation because he asked me about these things. And so you can then point back and said, oh yeah, you know, remember, Jerry, when you said this, we found the answer was actually this. And so because of that information we learned, we we are pointing users to the screen over here, or we elevated this component higher up so it stands out more or whatever it is. You can kind of point back to that prior information as opposed to, well, I like this being up top because it, it visually stands out and looks pretty. Very subjective thing. When you otherwise when you can point back to information, it makes it more objective. Mm, yes. I know that's such a big question. You handle that very well. I, I'm Thanks. very proud of you. Yeah, yeah I think so. the, the big thing with that is just I, most of my working career has been as a consultant. And so a lot of times people are coming to us 
and they've tried a bunch of stuff and they might be familiar with UX, but they they know that they they need some help already. But I think what's also very interesting is like working with some startups as well. Like they kind of understand that the quote user experience is very important for the success of their startup, but they don't quite understand what that means yet. And the same sort of concept applies. The more you can bring them along to to help them make decisions based off information you learn. I think discovery is a huge thing. We just did a, a discovery for a client of ours for a startup right now. And the information that we came back with, the things we learned weren't super positive, but we can say, hey, here's pivot points that we can take now because we've learned these things and they are directly from the things that we've learned. And so I think because you come to people with that mindset or that sort of approach, as opposed to saying, yeah, we should just got that idea. You should do these things instead without any justification. The same concept applies where you're you're kind of bringing people along or helping people see how you connect the dots as opposed to just connecting it for them and then having them make a decision which they might not fully understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned startups. I think mm-hmm. that's a good topic to talk about the continuous product design and business strategy that they mm-hmm. often involve. So I'm curious to know, how is your philosophy of the continuous product design has changed over time? Yeah, I think up until recently, you know, the concept of discontinuous improvement really was, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll do some usability testing, we'll find out what's wrong, or we'll maybe do some concept testing of a feature or a prototype or whatnot. And we'll, then we'll work with our develop, development team and build those things in. And it's kind of a natural progression. And there's nothing wrong with that approach either. I mean, it's, I think it's very successful. It's very, it's a very proper way to mitigate risk when it comes to features or changes, things like that, because you're kind of weighing the the pros and cons and getting the, you know, especially a designer gut checking your, your assumptions. But I think what I've learned recently is that's all very tactical. I definitely credit Jared Spool for talking about this. I'm part of the, his center center kind of like user group or whatever. So he always has these presentations. And one thing he's talked about is tactical UX versus strategic UX. So tactical being the usability testing, the uh, things where someone from the business is coming to you to help make their idea into reality. And I think for a lot of people, especially maybe, well, that's probably not unique to newer UX people or older UX people. I think it's really for any UX person at some point, you want to be part of the larger decision-making process where you can help kind of guide that strategy. And really those things are, they're a different angle to the continuous product development because you can make a a feature, let's say a, a shopping cart feature on a, on a retail app, you can make that the best you possibly can be. But then at some point, the business has to go beyond just being a, you know, a shopping cart type app. There's going to be other things that users are going to try to connect to through you as a business or other things that they might have on the peripheral that if you're not paying attention to what they're doing, and by paying attention, I mean doing continuous user interviews, not just for like a feature like usability testing. It's like actually, oh, when was the last time you did X or when was the last time you did Y? And really learning about what motivates them, what their day-to-day looks like, and connect. then having the creativity to connect those pain points to things that you could help solve in your app that they might not even be thinking about. I think it's a different angle to that whole continuous product um, development cycle that is for me kind of very fulfilling it's also very challenging because there's a lot of ambiguity and you know potentially some some risk that's involved there but then that's where those existing strategies of 
concept testing, A-B testing, usability testing kind of come into play as well. But but yeah, there's kind of those, those two different angles. And you know, a lot of people kind of get into it through the the usability testing interview sort of sort of segment, but then they kind of quickly find that, you know, where they work or what they use kind of like feature factory type stuff. And so being able to being able to work somewhere, which doesn't happen very often. And you know, if if someone can find a job like that, you know, more power to them. This is a very unique situation right now with UX is that the the next generation of UX leaders are really trying to, you know. They might have a seat at the table, but they're trying to get higher up in that that corporate ladder because they want to help influence business decisions. And some businesses are more susceptible to that. They're more open to that. And some businesses just aren't. And so there's probably going to be another wave here in the next 10 years of companies that kind of fall out because they're not paying attention to, to mm-hmm. UX or they're, or they're stuck in that tactical UX improvement and not kind of expanding their business based off of additional, you know, and it's also interesting because you see other other terms pop up like customer insights or consumer insights. And I think it's, it gets just overall Mm -hmm. CX customer experience. And I think it's very interesting because sometimes those get confused with, with the marketing. And I think that's also another struggle that UX battles as well as, you know, some leaders, they think marketing and, and UX and design are the same thing, but anybody who works in either of those departments will tell you it's, it's way different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally understand. And like with, with all these terminologies, it feels like buzzwords and they just got mm-hmm. lost in the actual reason why they exist and why they're important. And if there's one thing that I, my pet peeve of the UX industry is the amount of buzzwords that yes, and how many that come out every year feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I try to stay as you'll see me just call myself a designer. Like that's really what it is, whether you want to call it UI designer, UX designer, UI UX product designer like the word designer is the the main consistent thing in there so i just call myself a designer yeah but i've i've gone on like a little tangents about designer titles before yeah. this podcast my listeners definitely you know i'm just like hoping one day we can finally like all decide hey which is all these call each other either product designers or just ux designers and we just we just stick with it yeah yeah so and also about uh, continuous design iteration I know there's a lot of significant pivots and breakthroughs that happen throughout startup's journey. I'm curious to know, do you have any insights on that? That's a really good question. Because I really, I think the part that I'm most fascinated about with UX is that overlap between entrepreneurialism and like that strategic UX work. Because um, they're kind of almost one the same. And sometimes depending on where you work, the, the, the product teams might say, well, we're interested in building the right thing, but that's also the same sort of mantra you'll hear from, from UX as well. Like we want to make sure that we're building the right thing, but, and I kind of take those, those, those stances or those, those arguments and say, well, it's all under the the lens of entrepreneurialism. You know, you want to go out there and you have an idea and you want to vet whether or not it's good or not. What's also very interesting is last year I read the book, Save the Cat, which is about writing story, story scripts. And one of the things they talk about is, you know, when you have an idea, you got to boil it down to like a summary or or a very high level elevator pitch and go to a coffee shop and say, hey, you know, I'm 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 a script writer. I have this idea for a movie. Can I tell you about it really quick? And you like rattle off like two or three sentences and to see if their eyes glaze over or not. And that's a form of of usability testing. It's a form of, of customer insights. And so that whole mindset of just I have an idea, I have a concept. I want to get some feedback on it. I'm going to learn something. I'm going to take that back. I'm going to improve upon it. I think that 
the startups that take that approach and can make sure that there's going to be a level of just leap, a leap of faith. You're going to have something that you're going to build and you're going to hope it works. As long as you can make sure that there is a market fit for that and maybe not market fit in the traditional sense of the, the term, but that someone's going to use it. Or I think one, one great thing I've read recently is if you're a startup, always make sure you have your very first paying customer in mind. Like don't build something when you don't know who's going to buy it yet, which is kind of anti to, you know, the whole concept of like Facebook, where like we're going to build something great and then we're going to figure out how to monetize it later. I think that's mm-hmm. maybe the shift that you've, we, people are starting to see now with startups is that works f- for some degree for some certain types of, of startups or industries. But for the most part, especially when it becomes very product driven, you can operate that way because you just can't spend much time building a bunch of product and then it sit there. It's kind of the, my mom back in the day used to be part of, not like Mary Kay, but it's like Mary Kay for candles. And so she just always have a bunch of candles in her, in our house. And it's like, yeah, at some point you realize people just don't want to buy candles, but then someone, someone gets stuck holding the candles at some point in time. So the more you can actually have that early iteration feedback around, is this a good idea? Is this concept good? Take that leap of faith. And then from there, immediately turn that into okay, we're going to make this the best we can possibly be. Instead of just being like, okay, we're going we're gonna to spray and pray like these five different features for this sort of like, let's just use like an example of a, a dating app, have these five new features. Well, you kind of have five different testing points, which may be good, may be bad. But if you're not treating each of them equally with the amount of like user feedback and figuring out on an equal footing, which one is taking off and which ones you should cut. If you're just kind of like, build it and they will come type of mentality, you know, it's not going to work out that way. So I think it's the startups that find the ability to have the idea, build it, test it, and then immediately jump into that, that cycle of user feedback seem to have some level of success. I mean, I'm not a startup guru or anything like that, but I think that those seem to be the ones that at least around here have a little bit long, little, little bit of longevity. Yeah, I understand. Like these are all like really good principles and you know general guidelines that are mm-hmm. very effective. Mm-hmm. I know, like when we look at such as things like Facebook, when we realize like there's a lot of ways they could have failed, but they, mm-hmm. just, you know, despite the odds. So mm-hmm. that's always why it feels a little difficult to like, oh, but Facebook did it, therefore we can do it. And right. it doesn't always work out that way. Like we're also in. You raise a good example of how other startups or product driven companies are doing that like right now like what apple's doing with their headset that's coming out very soon and you know like it, it definitely raises a question like who are the people that are going to be using this and it doesn't seem like apple is very driven on that part to be honest it feels like they're very much on the, the capabilities of what this product can do yeah i think that's also very interesting because you know the whole google glass sort of argument could be made there as well and then there was one time back in like 2017 or 18, Snap, Snapchat had the Snap glasses and they're like a little bit more of a trendy thing because their app. I think it's very interesting because I think, especially some of these larger, larger companies, I mean, to Apple, I'm sure they're probably invested in the the wearables or at least the, the eyewear wearables. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if it fails, they still have their, all their other products and all their other income that comes along with it. So it's, it's a little bit different if you're like a, a brand new company versus you're a company that can peel off a, a couple of million dollars or whatever here. And yeah. I'm sure there's probably a little more sophistication to their R&D process than that. But I mean, you're right. Sometimes people don't take that user approach, but 
then people also point to the whole Henry Ford quote of the misattributed quote, I should say, that if I, if I would ask people what they wanted, they'd say faster horses. So there's that leap of faith sort of thing, but it's easier for a company that has millions of dollars, billions mm-hmm. of dollars to peel off a little bit for R&D. So yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say that I w- it's the best thing. Actually, one of the more fascinating things I think is Spotify had come out, it was very hidden, but they came up with this like device that you could put in your car that would help you navigate your Spotify play. Like you'd basically plug it into the app and then it would plug into your your computer stereo. But it was like a a tactile thing that would help you get through your playlists better. So you didn't have to like stare at your phone, kind of the whole like anti use your phone while driving kind of thing. They created this okay. device. It wasn't successful, but I'd be curious to know how, how much testing they did with that. Cause that's another one that wasn't successful overall, but it seemed like a really cool idea. Actually, I almost, I almost bought it because I thought it was going to be something that my wife would use because she's a big Spotify user. But then I think by, before I bought it, I saw that they were discontinuing it because it wasn't taking off for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of, it feels like they're want to bring back like the old iPod days Yeah, where like back in the day, like I was so good at using that wheel that I half the time I wouldn't even be looking at the screen to be uh-huh. able to pinpoint what playlist of music that I want. And now like you can't do that with the, the phones of these days because there is no tactile function of like where your placement is finger, you know, on the screen. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but I used to be, before I had my smartphone, you know, way back in the day, I used to be really good at having the flip phone and being able to, you know, hit the number six, three times to get a certain letter and then moving on. And I used to write full text messages that way without looking at, looking at the phone. I just would be driving at a low rate of speed, mind you, but being able to do that tactical feel. Yeah. You just don't get that with the the glass screens. It's a little bit different ball game. Yeah. So as we're drawing close to this episode. What's the best way to support what you're doing, Ryan? Yeah, I would say primarily I work for a company called PT Plus Uplift. We are a IT staffing and software development company. We're based out of Des Moines, Iowa, but we have people all around the Midwest. If you are a designer who's interested in potentially being a consultant or looking for contract work, hit me up, hit up P3 Plus Uplift. If you're a company out there listening to this for a startup, we do a lot of work with startups. We love helping companies go from either an idea to a fully fleshed out product, or maybe you have something that you're just struggling to get across the finish line from a startup standpoint to help get you that next round of VC funding. Definitely hit us up, hit me up. You can hit me up on LinkedIn, just linkedin.com slash IN slash R-C-Y-O-U. Just supporting P3 Plus Uplift, whether or not you are based in the Midwest or you're based in California or New York, LA, Chicago, wherever. We we work with companies all across the country. That's probably the best way. Yeah. And all links of that would be found in the show notes. So you can easily check out Ryan's company and his LinkedIn. Yes. So Ryan, any closing words you'd like our audience to know about? I would just say just keep keep finding ways to to do UX work, keep learning. I would say that's the biggest thing that got me to where I am right now. I'm a big learner, which is surprising because, I mean, I did really well in school, but I never thought that I would keep learning after I got out of, out of college. But I just find things that I'm very interested in. I probably drive my wife crazy because I read a lot of you know nonfiction books, like in terms of business books or uh, UX type books or like that Save the Cat thing. Things are like tendentially interesting to my field. I'm just like always learning about stuff. And 
it's not that you have to read that book and then immediately take those actions, but I think being able to collect a bunch of information and then find ways to apply it to your current job, it's going to make you more successful in the long run. That's one path. That was the path I took. Other people's paths into a successful UX career might be different, but I always encourage people to, to learn and learn the best way you know how, be it books, be it online courses, YouTube videos, podcasts like this. People learn in many different ways. So find the way that works for you and just absorb as much information as you can and then just find ways every quarter, every year to apply one or two things that you've learned. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more because I'm always about ways to grow in our lives. And for the listeners who are already listening to this, they're already on their way doing that because that's what this podcast tries to achieve. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, Ryan, for being here. So please do support our guests. And until then, you just listen to the UX Grow podcast. I'm your host, Nick Mann. Thank you for listening. That concludes another episode of the UX Growth Podcast. We appreciate your time with us today. If you found value in this discussion, we invite you to follow us on your preferred podcast platform or to connect with the host on LinkedIn. Before we part ways, we'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Bubble. If you're looking to create web applications effortlessly, Bubble's no-code platform is your gateway. Build your projects with intuitive drag-and-drop actions, making the complex seem simple. And the best part? You can kickstart your app development journey without any coding expertise. To support the show, we encourage you to visit our sponsors link, which can be found along with other links in the show notes. Until our next episode, continue your exploration, learning, and growth in the UX design field.